Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, so, as Kate said, been asked to speak about peacemaking uh, this morning. So we're in a three-week series, and last week Nathan talked about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and talked a bit about, um, we well, talked about all sorts of things, but he talked a bit about just war theory and is violence all right or not? Should we all be pacifists? Should we all be non-violent? And talked a bit about that. Next week, Steve is going to talk to us, I think, about John Lewis, not the uh, founder of the department stores, but the civil rights activist. It's a good job I'm not doing that one, otherwise you would have got to talk about Waitrose, I think. But, um, <laughs> Uh, this week, though, I'm talking about Betty Williams. Um, has anybody, it would be interesting just to get a sense of, does anybody know, just put your hand up if you do, who Betty Williams the peacemaker is? Great, I can say literally anything this morning in that case. Um, so I didn't know a huge amount about Betty Williams either until I found out I was doing this talk. And so I've done a bit of research about Betty. It, it, it's fascinating, actually. We'll come on to this in a bit that we don't know who she is. Um, I want to just tell you a little bit about her life story just to begin with um, but I find it really interesting that we don't know a huge amount about who she is. Um, so Betty Williams is a lady who um, grew up in Northern Ireland, lived in Belfast, a place called Andersonstown in Belfast um, and she uh, was born in the 1940s I think and sort of lived, was in her 20s, 30s as the, the troubles, the civil war in Northern Ireland was kicking off really in the late 60s and the early 70s and then through the 80s and 90s. Um, and she lived in Andersonstown, which is, um, having looked at a map, just, just sort of towards the end of the Falls Road in Belfast. So sort of right in the epicentre of things you will know about, um, which is the sort of peace line between, between the, the Catholic Falls Road area and the Protestant Shankill Road area. And so she lived right at the epicentre of all the violence that took place in the 60s and 70s. Um, and she was living in a society... Um, and she had a, a young family living in a society that I guess infamously you will know about in 1972, um, the Bloody Sunday massacre and 14 people being shot by the British Army and killed. Um, and she was living in a society where paramilitary groups were shooting each other on a daily basis, were bombing places, were um, having you know, executions. She was living in a society that was, frankly, in the late 60s, early 70s, the British Army had moved into Northern Ireland to try and keep the peace because things were spiralling into a civil war. Um, and her story, right at the epicentre of that, is that living in this situation which was turning from um, bitter discord between people into actual physical violent conflict. Um, her particular story is that one day she was driving to see her mum with a young child with her um, and was driving down one of the roads in Belfast and witnessed as she was driving down the road an IRA, a young IRA paramilitary um, shooting at, sort of drive-by shooting of a British Army soldier. Um, I think they, they missed, but the, the Army shoulder shot back and killed the IRA paramilitary man um, and because he was driving a car the car careered out of control down the street and into a young family killing two young children outright and the third child um, died the following day the mum actually survived but committed suicide only a number of years later and her story is about that moment changing her life frankly and Betty Williams interestingly is a pretty normal person you know um, 
I think sometimes when we look at peacemakers, we expect them to be these extraordinary characters, and of course they are, but in one sense, there's the normalness of Betty Williams's life, and this moment um, just changes her perspective on life. Um, and there's a film about Betty Williams, which is really interesting to watch. It was a little bit like being preparing for this, like being at school and watching the film rather than reading the book, but I did watch the film, and it is a really good film, and you learn so much about her life. And that moment sparked a sense of complete outrage in her about the fact that these lives have been wasted the three children and the paramilitary young man just lives extinguished and she just in her moments had this moment of real clarity that this was just violence to absolutely no end this was just completely purposeless wasteful violence that was killing people and had this real moment of clarity that frankly led her to be fearless for the rest of her life um she had this moment that she was outraged by, genuinely outraged by. And she says in the film that um, she refused to live in fear. And so she went on after this moment of outrage to um, decide she was going to do something about it. Enough was enough. She went out and walked the streets of Belfast and collected a petition from Catholic women and from Protestant women largely, but all sorts of people. Collected a 6,000-strong um, petition in the days after um, these children had been killed. She went on the days after that to um, organise a march. It was mainly women, Protestant women and Catholic women. 10,000 of them marched to the graves of these three children. The days after that, she did another march um, with a lady called Maraid, who was the aunt of the children. 35,000 people turned out to march to demand peace and say enough was enough. They hosted all sorts of marches and peace protests throughout Northern Ireland and actually in the UK, in the England as well. And, um, and she, they walked down the Falls Road. So they marched down the Falls Road, walking into um, violence, people throwing bricks at them, um, walking into IRA territory where, you know, there was the possibility they might be shot. She kicked off a peace movement of largely women in Northern Ireland that went on to actually change the course of how... Um, that conflict played out in Northern Ireland. Um, she set up something called the People of Peace, the Peace People. And uh, they were little cell groups, I guess, of women all around Northern Ireland, Catholic women and Protestant women meeting together. They ran, they set up schools where they said, look, it is not okay that we live in segregation. We'll set up schools where Catholic children and Protestant children grow up together. We'll run football clubs where Catholic children and Catholic young people and Protestant young people play football together. Um, and they did all sorts of things. They also set up loads of different social activities. One of the things that she would say is that there was these chronic divisions between Catholic and Protestant people, but Northern Ireland was also had one of the highest rates of unemployment in the country and some of the lowest levels of housing quality in all of Western Europe. The conditions were just ripe for conflict and violence, and so they did things about that too. Ultimately, um, Betty Williams was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1976 um, and so was honoured for, for what she'd done. And she's gone on in, you should watch the film, she's gone on in the rest of her life to be somebody who campaigns about peace but campaigns about justice and she set up all sorts of things all over the world which are about justice for for children around the world and I think it's really interesting that we don't know very much about her a time in our country not that long ago in my lifetime where there was pretty much civil war going on in our country and a woman that started a peace movement that had hundreds of thousands of people part of it and yet we don't know who she is but I bet you if we go around the room you can tell me five or six or seven 
male paramilitary people who actually perpetrated the violence in Northern Ireland. I think that's a fascinating thing, isn't it? What we actually care about as a society, what actually pricks our imagination. Um, there are a few things I just want to say about Betty and then we'll come on to some practical things for us. The first thing is, just as you read about her and you find about her life, just this sense of actual outrage and actual anger that she felt about those situations and it hasn't gone away. Um, and I think that's a really good thing. She had, a guess, a, a choice. When she saw these children being killed and this moment of in, you know, just being incensed about it and outraged by it, did she use that sense of outrage and turn it into something to more violence. She could have, in that moment, chosen to actually live a, a bitter life that was fighting against other people in Northern Ireland. She could have taken that moment as an opportunity to start fighting back against the British Army or to fight against the IRA. Or She could have done anything in that moment that was actually negative. Actually, she took her outrage and her anger and she channeled it into something extremely positive. Um, there's this little formula that I want us to just think about as we go through this talk. I think in Betty Williams' life, you had these three things going on. She had really high levels of outrage and anger and energy around the injustice that she was witnessing in front of her. But she also, at the same time, had really high levels of love and compassion and being able to channel that energy into something positive. And thirdly, she had very, very low levels of fear. In that moment, she just decided enough was enough. I'm not going to live my life in fear. I'm going to do something about this, even if this has an impact on my relationship with my husband, even if this puts me in danger, even if this means I walk down the Falls Road and have bricks thrown at me. I am not going to live my life in fear anymore. This little formula, high levels of outrage, high levels of love and compassion, and low levels of fear. And she says this. She says that apathy and fear are the biggest killers in the world. Um, and I think that's really true. I think that's true for us as a society, that apathy and fear stop us doing stuff. Apathy and fear lead us to inaction. Apathy and fear lead us to not doing things about situations, not being peacemakers. I think you see that in big things. I think you see that in small things. So um, just in the last couple of weeks, I've spoken with, this is just a small example, but um, some civil servants who... Um, work in a department where their job is to change the world. Their job is to change society. Their job is to change communities in this country. And they say, well, we got into this job for that reason, but actually we are trapped by the red tape. We are trapped by the rules. We're slightly fearful of the bureaucracy around us. We don't know how to step outside of that. We feel slightly fearful of it. I think our world, and certainly in our culture, sets us up for feeling a level of inability to do stuff and fearfulness about the rules around us and inability to step outside of the rules around us and do something about situations we find ourselves in. I think apathy and fear are actually massive problems. I see that even as I work for Oasis during the week and fear is contagious. So, you know, Steve's um, recently talking to us all, isn't he, about setting up a, a youth detention centre, a, a young people's prison. We could be fearful about that in Oasis. I could be fearful about that. And if I am, I can probably... That is contagious. I can probably make other people fearful about that too. Fear will stop us doing something about a situation that we absolutely must together. We can sow fear if we want, but courage is equally contagious. Um, in Betty's life, you also find a real level of cynicism about what she was doing. She was a non-violent protester, a non-violent person who was outraged but wanted to show love and compassion. And in the film, as you watch it, you hear loads of people saying... Yeah, but non-violence doesn't really work, does it? That's a bit naive, isn't it? Cynicism is a, 
I think uh, an ability to not do something about something. It's um, the ability to say, I don't want to actually get involved in that situation. Fear, apathy, cynicism, stop us doing stuff. I think the other thing is that in Betty's life, she did feel this level of outrage. And I wonder whether us, but certainly the church, has actually lost a sense of outrage about stuff. Um, in the big things and the small things. You know, we see the conflict in Syria that's gone on for the last decade, and it's just another news story. We see the migration crisis that's happened over the last several years and children washed up dead on Turkish and Greek beaches, and it's just another news story. And it's not just far away stuff either. So right here in this society, we should feel outraged about the fact that young people in our city are having to run county lines because they're groomed by criminal gangs to run drugs from our city out to the home counties. We should feel a level of outrage about the fact that in the sixth richest country on earth, a third of the population of children in our country live in poverty, four million children. We should feel a sense of outrage, I think, about the fact that in this city, where there are multi-millionaires all around us, there are also people that have jobs but don't, aren't able to put food on the table because the wages don't go far enough. We should feel a sense of outrage that we've set up a society in this country where there are the haves and the have-nots, and you don't even have to meet each other. And I wonder whether, actually, we recognise that sense of outrage and whether it just glosses over us a bit. My job in Oasis is to do community work around the country and I go to some of our hubs around the country and I've visited people's houses where they're living in houses with floorboards with holes in them and no running water in the houses. Like, we should feel a sense of outrage that in our country that goes on and yet we're the sixth richest country on earth. And I wonder whether that sense of outrage gets a bit lost. And in the story of Betty Williams, you hear... Like this sense of outrage which he is going to put into practice. High levels of outrage, high levels of love and compassion, and low levels of fear. And sometimes I wonder whether, as a, as a church, maybe even our community here, whether we sometimes manage to muster up a bit of outrage, and then we sort of misplace our response. Um, so, here's just an example. I think we can sometimes be a bit outraged by Donald Trump's policies or some of the things he says on the news. And then I think we sometimes take that outrage and turn it into vilifying the person. So we spend all our time actually vilifying the person of Donald Trump. We are not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be people who are outraged by injustice but love our enemy. We're supposed to be outraged by injustice but love our enemy. Even the conflict in um, Syria, I think Nathan talked a bit about just war last week. And we are outraged by the fact that our country might go to war in another country and we shouldn't be about violence, our model is non-violence. And what we do with that is we vilify the people who have taken those decisions. We should be outraged by the injustice of that situation, not just being a bit snooty about the people who took decisions to be involved in conflict or not. And sometimes I think we use all of that as an excuse for not doing stuff. Our outrage should be about injustice, and we should do something about that. I think about the Syria situation. Fair enough if we don't think violence is the right answer and war is not the right answer, but we should still be outraged about the situation and be doing something else about it. Our outrage should be about the injustice, and we can't just critique other people and vilify people. Our job is to actually do something about it if we are outraged. Um, I think Betty Williams demonstrates some of this. Um, there's a story as part of her journey where 
she sets up this thing called Peace House, and she sets up the house, and she, I think it's on the first day of it opening, a young man walks into her office, and he's, a, again, an IRA man, and pulls a gun on her and threatens to shoot her. And there's a, a slight struggle as she throws her desk over, and the guy drops his gun and, I think, runs out of the room. Um, she sees that guy ongoingly. He's often loitering outside the house, and she's worried that, actually, she's got a mark on her and she's going to be shot. Um, but she decides that she's going to summon up the courage to go across the road where this guy loiters um, and actually go and talk to him. And the story goes on that she begins to develop a relationship with this guy and begins to hear some of his story and begins to talk about the terrible things he's done as a paramilitary. Um, but they become really close friends and he becomes friends with members of her family. And actually he become, goes on to be somebody who is quite fundamental in their peace movement. A good example of she is outraged by the injustice, but she isn't vilifying the people. It's high levels of outrage, high levels of love and compassion, and low levels of fear. Um, another thing that I think is fascinating from the story of, I guess, the conflict in Northern Ireland, I think we let ourselves off the hook a little bit when we turn peacemaking into um, a response to violent conflict or war. Um, it becomes a theoretical exercise about what we think about war somewhere else sometimes. Um, and sometimes we manage to do a better job than that and say, well, conflict's not all somewhere else. Some, what about the conflict that goes on in my life? Or what about the conflict between me and other people at work? Or what about the conflict with members of my family? And sometimes we manage to draw it a bit closer. And that's a, a much better conversation because it's become personal and practical. But I wonder whether there's a step even further than that. Peacemaking is not always about stuff has gone wrong, how do we resolve that conflict? Peacemaking is about the small decisions I get to take every day, which either point towards justice or point away from justice. Um, the Northern Ireland conflict is a, a good example of that. Um, that conflict and that violence didn't come out of the thin blue air. That conflict and violence was the culmination of 800 years worth of small decisions that either pointed towards justice or pointed away from justice. It's the story of kings of England being dismissive of another country. It's the story of the Reformation and the conflict between Protestants and Catholics. It's the story of Scottish people and English people colonising and being colonial towards Ireland and actually sending people to live in Ireland. It's the story of the plantation of Ulster where Catholic people had their land taken off at them and given to Scottish Protestants and English Protestants. It's the story of the uh, Republic of Ireland being born in the 1920s and yet Britain hanging on to Northern Ireland and being really fearful of the Catholics that lived there for fear that they might want to join back into the greater um, Union of Ireland. It's a story of many, many decisions over many, many years that spiral and culminate in violence. It's not something that comes out of thin blue air. So I think peacemaking is actually about how do we take those small decisions every day, all the time, which point towards justice as opposed to pointing away from justice. So in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the environment. How do we take the decisions? How do I take the decisions every day to make choices that are just rather than unjust? How do I make sure that my choices don't create conflict somewhere at some point down the line? In our society, the things I talked about earlier, how do I take the choices every day 
which mean that we don't set up conflict in our society where there are the haves and the have-nots. How do I take the choices every day which sets a good culture at work as opposed to a bad culture at work, which is trusting and honest and open? We get to make choices every day in the small things that actually either lead to conflict or take away from conflict. So I think we let ourselves off the hook a little bit when we make it all about violent conflict and what is our response to that. I think peacemaking is actually the small things that we get to do in every moment of every day that either take us towards justice or away from justice. The final thing I'd say about Betty Williams is that she was really prepared to just call out the obvious. Um, her whole thing was Catholic women and Protestant women do not hate one another. Regardless of what the paramilitaries would tell you, regardless of what the news media might tell you, regardless of what the British Army might tell you, Catholic women and Protestant women do not hate one another. And so our whole thing was, how do we cross the divide and get people to sit down and have a cup of tea with one another? Um, she was really prepared to call out the blindingly obvious. And sometimes I think we make the world really complicated um, and forget to call out the obvious. Like, just an example going on in our society right at the moment, you'd be forgiven for thinking that half of our country are Remainers and half of our country are um, Brexiteers and we all hate one another. It is not true, is it? We live in, you know, probably one of the biggest Remain voting areas of London, and yet I know people from Grimsby who live in one of the highest leave voting areas of the country. We do not hate one another. We can sit down and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And yet I think we easily buy into the narratives that are given to us that sow discord and sow division between ourselves. We should call out the obvious, particularly the church should call out the obvious, that there isn't this great big divide. There's much more in humanity that ties us together than... Um, so is discord between us. So, what's our responsibility in all of this? First thing I would say is, practically, I think peacemaking is not just about conflict resolution. Peacemaking is a proactive thing that we get to choose to do day in, day out. Um, again, the life of Betty Williams shows you that. She is all about justice. She's not just about conflict resolution. Everything she does is about making choices with, which either lead towards justice or lead away from it. The second thing is I think we need to be a community that fosters high levels of outrage, high levels of love and compassion, and low levels of fear. That's why I picked those three readings. So the first reading was Jesus turning over the um, tables in the temple. High levels of outrage. I don't know how much you know about that story, but Jesus' point is it's not about how much the money sellers are, you know, the exchange rate for money in the temple. The temple system was a system of exclusion. It was a filtration system of exclusion. You could come into the outer court, whoever you are. You could only come into the next court if you were a Jew. You could only come into the next court if you were a Jewish man. You could only come into the next court if you were a Jewish man who was a priest. You could only come into the next court if you were a Jewish man who was a high priest. And you could only go right into the middle if you were the high priest on one day of the year. The temple was actually a physical system of exclusion. And the money changers were the gatekeepers. They were the bouncers. And Jesus was saying, this is wrong. I'm outraged at this exclusion. I'm outraged at this injustice. So the Bible is littered with stories of outrage at injustice. The reason I read you, the, or Kate read you, the Galatians passage, because the Bible is also littered with, and don't turn that outrage into anger and violence. The way you should live is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness. Turn that outrage into good stuff. Turn that outrage into something constructive. And thirdly, that story of Paul on the shipwreck. Again, I think the Bible is also littered with stories of people who have lost all fear. 
They've decided that enough is enough and they're not going to live a life of fear. Paul ends up shipwrecked, ends up in prison. Jesus' story is that he ends up crucified on a cross. The Bible is littered with stories of high outrage, high levels of love and compassion and low levels of fear. So I guess the question for us is how we go about creating that environment together. And I've lost the poem. Okay, fine. Um, how we go about creating that environment together? Well, first of all, I think we should talk about the things that outrage us all the time. Secondly, I think we need to set up a culture together that enables us to be loving and compassionate. And thirdly, I think we need to set up a culture that helps us not to have fear together. And I guess, going back to the poem Kate read at the start, we are only going to do any of that if we know... We are loved, and we are loved by God, and we are loved by one another in a community together. You can't have outrage against stuff. You can't respond well. You can't feel like you don't have fear unless you know that you're held in a community that is loving. So I think our job is to do those three things. Have high levels of outrage, have high levels of love and compassion, and try and strive for a community together that is not fearful. Um, we can only do that if we are loved. And so I want to read you the poem again that Kate read you. This is the God who loves us. This God sees our hearts. This careful calculator counting countless millions counts us in. This artist whose canvas outstretches eternity at both ends, whose palette outcolors planets, paints our portrait. This lover who dreams in universes dreams of us. This creator whose breadth of vision spans time and spawns a cosmos whose woven tapestry of purpose, more compound than chaos, eclipsing complexity, rolls out like a highway through history, whose heartbeat deafens supernova, this father kisses us. This playwright playing with the deaths and entrances of stars, scripting the end from the beginning, knowing the purpose of the play, watches our feeble ambition audition and writes us in. <laughs>